welcome back to the 2021 Vasculitis Guidelines Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and I'm excited to be talking to you today about polyarteritis nodosa with Dr. Jason Springer. In case you're just tuning in, this is a podcast series from the Vasculitis Foundation. I'll be reviewing the 2021 ACRVF-sponsored Vasculitis Guidelines and discussing the updated recommendations with one of the main authors of each guideline document. We've got a really fun episode today that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. So, you know, before I get into the main episode, I'd like to introduce the star of the show, which is, of course, polyarteritis nodosa. Uh, it's a syst- systemic necrotizing medium vessel vasculitis, though the small vessels are often involved as well, uh, which presents typically with constitutional symptoms. And aside from this curious predilection to spare the lungs, it kind of affects just about any organ system. So it classically results in purpuric skin lesions, uh, renal artery involvement, um, resulting in renal vascular hypertension, and uh, mononeuritis multiplex. Abdominal pain, secondary to mesenteric involvement is, is common, and muscle symptoms are commonly reported. Orchitis always makes it onto the board, so if you're a trainee, don't forget that one, but this generally affects a minority of cases. Uh, before I introduce our guest, I wanted to briefly mention a couple of the recommendations that I believe will be somewhat commonplace for us already. Um, these include conditional recommendations for abdominal vascular imaging, both at diagnosis and for follow-up, which I think most of us tend to do already. I think this makes sense. Uh, they also recommended cytoxin upfront over alternatives, such as rituximab for active severe disease, which I don't think is controversial in, uh, in polyarteritis nodosa the way it would be in maybe ankylosis. Um so uh, with that, I'd like to take a deeper dive into some of the other recommendations. My guest today will be Dr. Jason Springer. He's the co-director of the Vanderbilt Vasculitis Center. He's one of the lead authors of the ACRVF guidelines for polyarteritis nodosa. So uh, welcome, Dr. Springer. I'm ha- excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I'm excited to talk about this disease. It's a, it's a, it's a vexing clinical condition. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of great data, but uh, I think it's, that makes it all the more important that we have these guidelines. Um, so, you know, for starters, I just want to dive right in on the recommendations for diagnosis. The guidelines recommend a skin and a muscle biopsy. Um, now, I know a lot of people aren't doing these double punch uh, biopsies that uh, they mentioned, and I, I was curious to hear your thoughts on why that was recommended and how functionally you wind up getting people to do that for you. Yeah, so, um, you know, so as you know, uh, PAN can be difficult to, di- to confirm the diagnosis sometimes. A lot of times we're uh, dependent on the, you know, either biopsy or imaging findings. And so I think the skin is a very high yield area uh, and it can be low risk, you know, to get a, a biopsy there when patients do have skin involvement. Um, and uh, the challenge is that these are medium vessels, so they're deeper vessels. So, um, so you know, the uh, when I've worked with dermatologists in the past, uh, doing a punch within a punch uh, has been very effective in terms of getting down to those deeper tissues where the medium vessels are. And uh, so what they do is they typically t- use a uh, little wider bore uh, punch initially to get the superficial layers. And then within that, they'll use a narrower uh, bore and uh, then get a little bit deeper. And so that's been pretty effective in terms of getting those medium vessels. and. Um, there's other techniques as well. Um, now, as far as like uh, the nerve biopsy, uh, maybe has a l- little bit more uh, potential for risk, although it's still pretty safe um, and uh, can be very high yield. And as far as the recommendations, there's a little bit of literature to suggest that uh, your yield is a little bit higher if you go for the muscle as well. And you know, you're already in there for the nerve biopsy, and so getting some muscle tissue doesn't especially increase the risk of that biopsy um, significantly. And so 
that's kind of where that recommendation came from in terms of getting both the nerve and uh, muscle biopsies. So I like that. I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer in tissue for some of these harder to diagnose diseases. And uh, like you say, if you're already doing a punch biopsy, doing a double punch may increase the yield. It seems totally reasonable. Uh, I think that'll be something that'll be good for people to hear about. Cause I, I don't know that dermatologists are widely doing those at the moment for this diagnosis. Uh, maybe outside of the centers that have been doing it regularly. Uh, so that, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, yeah, no problem. All right, so next I have sort of an interesting question about prognostication and disease severity. Now the, the, the five factor score, I think is what a lot of us had to memorize as fellows. Um, you know, this is a, a developed by the French vascular study group in the nineties and was revised more recently to include renal insufficiency, GI involvement, cardiomyopathy and age. And um, it's kind of a moving target. I think ear, nose, and throat involvement may be a good sign. A lot of us throw neurologic involvement in there as the fifth factor. So <laughs> I don't know exactly where it is stands today, but um, you know, the idea is that if patients lack all of these features, uh, you can treat with glucocorticoids alone, which I think has been standard practice for a lot of us. Now, the guidelines we're discussing here recommended DMARD therapy instead for all patients, including those with non-severe disease. So, so what led the panel to recommend this? And you know, is there still a role for glucocorticoid monotherapy, or do you think that everyone deserves glucocorticoids plus a DMARD up front? Yeah, so um, this may be a good uh, point to uh, just kind of point out that, uh, so the guidelines focused on primary systemic PAN, so primary meaning uh, not due to a secondary cause, like hepatitis B-associated PAN, so that wasn't the focus of the guidelines. And then systemic, so, um, you know, those patients that had isolated PAN uh, weren't the focus of the guidelines, so I, th I think that's an important point. And the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, I, I may treat uh, isolated PAN, isolated cutaneous PAN uh, with glucocorticoid monotherapy. Um, now, as far as the, uh, yeah, the five-factor score uh, has really kind of uh, um, uh, moved the literature forward. And a lot of the uh, treatment, um, you know, the, the trials are uh, related to uh, the five-factor score of uh, the patients. And so, um, you know, the five-factor score has a lot of prognostic value in terms of predicting mortality in these uh, uh, patients with a higher score uh, being a worse mortality. Um, I think there's some important considerations to think about when you evaluate the five-factor score. So for one, uh, the initial scores were um, based off of a mixed population, not just uh, PAN, but also EGPA and MPA. And so keep that in mind. Uh, and in the revised one also included GPA. And so that's where that sinus stuff comes in, you know? And, um, but um, the other thing that I think is uh, good to mention here is, uh, you know, in these early trials, they define non-severe as kind of a five-factor score of zero and then one or more as severe. But in the guideline, uh, they define severe as any organ or life-threatening manifestations. And so keep that in mind as well. I think there's some clinical judgment there because, uh, you know, the five-factor score doesn't especially include all the potential um, life-threatening or um, you know organ-threatening manifestations. So, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, some some of the early studies by the French vasculitis uh, group, they uh, if patients had a five-factor score of zero or non-severe, then they treat them with uh, glucocorticoid monotherapy and just uh, you know keep the DMARDs for if they flared and. Uh, so, um, you know, looking at that study, there are patients that uh, will do okay on monotherapy, but there was a significant number of patients that flared there. And so I think that's what led to the panel, you know, deciding 
on the rec the conditional recommendation of um, using a DMARG with glucocorticoids. And that truthfully has been my practice as well, just because I'm worried about them flaring. So um, yeah. Now for severe disease, uh, like you said, the uh, the treatment is a little bit more straightforward in the literature. You know, cytoxin has kind of played a dominant role there. And uh, these are early studies. So rituximab, we don't have great large data, you know, large studies regarding rituximab in uh, Plaragus nodosa. So. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's, I, I like that you parsed out the cutaneous PAN. I've seen some cases of isolated cutaneous PAN. And, uh, you know, th that does seem like the group where you could get away with a little less, but uh you know, I, I, PAN kind of scares me sometimes. So I, I do like to add a DMARD as well. I think we probably practice similarly. <laughs> um, staying, staying on the topic of DMARDs actually. So say you had a patient who required cytoxin upfront, you know, one of these people who had severe disease. There's a conditional recommendation for transitioning from cytoxin to another DMARD. They kind of mentioned methotrexate or azathioprine. And I always love it when people and guidelines just sort of pick one, put their nickel down. So do you have any thoughts on one over another? Are they truly equivocal or is the one that you think most people favor? Yeah, um, so in terms of like the recommendation of switching from cytoxin to a less aggressive immunosuppressive therapy, that's, uh, it's, direct on, it's based on indirect evidence. You know, we know cytoxin uh, does uh, increase the risk of uh, cancers, especially bladder cancer. And that's based on the cumulative dose of uh, cyclophosphamide. And, you know, from the ANCA-associated vasculitis literature, uh, we know that once we, uh, you know, once we transition the cyclophosphamide after about three to six months, then the risk of those cancers went dramatically down. And uh, so part of that comes from, you know, the ANCA-associated vasculitis world. Um, now, as far as uh, which one to transition to, uh, you know, the most experience in the literature is with methotrexate and azathioprine. Uh, there are other agents out there that really just because of the, you know, how old the literature is, uh, we don't have a lot of data on, you know, um, as far as like, uh, you know, there's no big studies comparing directly methotrexate to azathioprine. And I can't say that I especially have a preference over one or the other. Um, I think patient characteristics probably play uh, the biggest role in terms of, you know, if you have like a young female, that's a childbearing age, you know, you might not want to use methotrexate just because of you know, the fertility potential issues and the issues with toxicity of the fetus, or, you know, if you have a patient with a low TPMT, you know, maybe azathioprine isn't the best choice. So probably more the patient characteristics will uh, guide my uh, choice of which one to do. And typically with methotrexate, as probably you do as well, the, in, the, in the vasculitis uh, uh, literature in general, the methotrexate doses have typically been 15 milligrams per week or more up to like 30 milligrams per week. And azathioprine, typically you're aiming for a dose of two milligrams uh, per kilogram per day. That's great. I think that's some nice tangible recommendations for folks who are listening. <laughs> uh, I, I also like how you mentioned the age of the data because that came up in one of the other recommendations and was honestly quite, quite impressive. Uh, so this is my next question for you is more of a medical question about the literature you cited. Uh, there was a study from 1995 and there was one in 1979 to guide recommendations for plasma exchange and uh, discontinuing steroids after 18 months, sort of respectively. So, you know, that, that, that's a great literature view, but you, you wonder about data that are that old and whether it's uh, expired in a way. So, uh, so how do you view data from, from that time period? And, you know, how confident are you in, in, in making recommendations based off of it? Because there, there was a conditional recommendation to discontinue treatment after 18 months. 
So, so where does expert panel recommendations and that data kind of fit into that, to that conditional recommendation? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. And uh, I think it's important to remember that the landscape of PAN has kind of changed over time, you know? So at one time, uh, PAN was kind of the form of vasculitis, you know, and everything was thought to be kind of a subgroup of PAN. But um, over time, there's been some significant events that have occurred. Um, so for instance, uh, uh, you know, the association with hepatitis B and PAN, um, you know, was discovered, you know, around 1970. And then also uh, microscopic polyangitis, all of those patients used to be PAN. And, uh, you know, like in the 1980s is when the ANCA antibodies came out. And then the 1990s is when the Chapel Hill Consensus Conference kind of sep officially separated out microscopic polyangitis. And so our pool of primary PAN patients has actually kind of gone down over time. It's become a lot more rare. And so it may, that makes it a lot more difficult to do studies, I think, uh, in, you know, the, the era we're in now, um, and which is good. It means that we're finding a lot of causes for this, you know, but it just makes the, tri the trials more difficult to do. And so we did have to uh, go back in literature to find, uh, you know, large trials. And when you are evaluating the literature, it is important in PAN to, uh, you know, consider that, uh, um, you know, these uh, in these cohorts, um, you know, if it was done prior to 1970, you have to consider that maybe some of these patients are hepatitis B, or uh, if it's done afterwards, you just have to make sure they've carefully separated out those patients. Um, and then also, you know, if it's done before the 1990s, uh, you know, you have to consider the fact that some of those patients were MPA, you know, and some of the early French studies, which are some of the biggest studies we have, they, they do outright say that some of them are, you know, microscopic polyangitis, you know. So now as far as the recommendation regarding length of uh, therapy, so, you know, we don't have uh, great long-term studies in terms of how long to continue maintenance therapy, unlike in ANCA-associated vasculitis. Um, so part of that recommendation is based on the fact that in the literature, there's this theme that a lot of patients will have a monophasic course. Um, and so, you know, I think it is reasonable at some point to uh, stop the maintenance therapy, but I, I think the 18 months is somewhat arbitrary, you know, so a lot of the studies, they go for 18 to 24 months and then they, they have to stop sometime, you know, so, um, so I, I don't think I get too caught up on the 18 months, but uh, uh, I think if you have a patient that uh, has demonstrated that they have maintained remission long-term without relapses, then it's worth, you know, trying to stop therapy and uh, just monitor closely. Um, I'll just add that there are some patients that if they've had pretty severe manifestations in the past, like GI involvement, I may be somewhat more hesitant to stop maintenance therapy. So. That makes a lot of sense. I, I like the historical, uh, uh, this, the historical lesson there in, in PAN management. It's, it's, it's interesting watching diseases evolve over time. That kind of leads into my final question, which is a very recent phenomenon and, and another area where some of these people who we had previously called PAN are kind of being sectioned off into a new disease. And, and that's the, the DADA2. One of the few strong recommendations was for TNF inhibitors for that disease. Uh, there's been some very impressive studies. One was presented at ACR last year with small numbers, but still uh, quite, quite, quite good results uh, with regard to efficacy. So you know, I thought that, was, that made sense and was helpful, but I'm, I'm much more curious about the diagnostic workup to get there in the first place. So, so who do you think we should be screening and, and how, how do you recommend screening to find those people uh, for whom you're going to treat with uh, TNF inhibitors? 
Yeah, so um, yeah, I'll kind of reemphasize the TNF inhibitors in data too. So the, the literature is very impressive. And I think it's really, as you said, it's kind of become the standard of care in uh, data two patients that have vasculitis features, especially in terms of preventing stroke uh, based on that NIH data. So now um, as far as who to screen, so that is a more difficult question in terms of um, um, you know, there isn't especially consensus that I know of, but uh, I think it would be uh, reasonable to screen uh, any kids that are diagnosed with PAN. You know, that's a high yield population to screen for data too. Um, for adults, um, you know, th there was a study that actually looked at an adult primary PAN population through the VCRC cohort. And, um, you know, what they found is when they screened, there was a prevalence of about 5% uh, of patients uh, that were data two positive that met criteria for data two. Uh, so it doesn't make sense, especially to screen every adult uh, PAN patient for data two. Um, I think there are some clues in uh, patients that you should screen for it. So for instance, anybody that's had uh, childhood onset, um, anybody that has a family history of PAN or PAN-like features, um, or um, if they have had uh, neurologic involvement, like strokes and stuff. And uh, the reason there is just because they're the ones that could be, benefit the most uh, by the diagnosis of data too, because uh, we don't, it's not as, you know, TNF inhibitors aren't especially the first thing we reach for, for primary PAN. So that can make a huge difference in those patients. Um, now, as far as uh, how to screen the patients, uh, again, I don't know of any consensus regarding this. There's a couple different ways to confirm the diagnosis uh, and screen. Um, so one would be to check the genetic testing. So checking the ADA2 um, gene, what was previously the CCR1 gene. Um, and uh, you know this is commercially available now. Um, there is a uh, panel that uh, it's included in an immunodeficiency or um, periodic fever panel. Um, and then the other way is to check uh, ADA, peripheral ADA2 levels. And you can either check uh, the absolute levels or the enzyme activity. Now, the only place I know of that is CLIA certified to do this is at Duke. Um, I'm told in the pipeline, I think there's going to be a point of care testing that might be available. So, um, but that's not available yet. Um, but, you know, to really confirm the diagnosis, I would probably actually get both. That makes a lot of sense. I think the people that I've been screened have generally been children and, and folks who've had strokes. So it's interesting to hear how you see that and kind of expanding that a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time when we're kind of sectioning off chunks of diseases this way, similar earlier this year with the Vexus data. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's really great to hear. But, but I, I think it is important to keep adults in mind though. You know, I, th I think a lot of people think of the, it as a childhood disease and I've definitely seen adults that, uh, you know, I've been diagnosed with the disease. So it's important that we keep our lookout in the adult population. Yeah, I as well. I agree. Uh, all right. Well, this was great. I think that concludes our podcast. Um, yeah. I want to thank uh, Dr. Springer again for coming on the show. I, I think it's been a really good uh, rundown of the PAN guidelines. Uh, if you're listening, be sure to check out the Vasculitis Foundation. You can find them on their website at vasculitisfoundation.org or on Twitter at vasculitisfound. You can find me at EV Room. And uh, thank you so much for coming, Dr. Springer. It was really, really nice talking to you. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure.